the change to how we plan batteries is not going to have any impact on those thermal flows um, and those are real wind projects you know they, they've got consents and so on um, so I think that Bramford Twinstead circuit for example you know which is I feel like everyone knows lots about now um, you know I think that's going to stay there um, and um, and there's, there's the stability constraints as well which again they're not they're not being driven by by battery. Hello and welcome to the Connectology podcast. Here, Road Knight Taylor's influential team of elite connection specialists and their expert guests help you to better understand distribution and transmission network connections and how to acquire them faster, for less cost and at lower risk. So on today's podcast um, of the series, we are talking about the, the hot off the press news, which came out earlier this week, that National Grid is changing the, and I have to admit to being um, very much a layperson in this regard, but thankfully I'm, I'm joined by some experts, but National Grid have changed the assumptions it uses when it models um, battery storage. And this is um, hopefully, and uh, Pete Aston and Catherine Cleary, two of the Road Night Teleconnectologist, who we got on today, will hopefully tell us that this is going to be absolutely game-changing in um, freeing up the grid queues um, and opening up what uh, were the, I guess, perceived or modelled constraints in order to allow an awful lot more um, generation and storage to connect an awful lot earlier because we did have some uh, dates, connection timeframes going out to, I think, as bad as 2036. So um, I will... Um, just ask uh, you two, Pete and Catherine, just to shoot the breeze over this. And I might um, ask one of you, and the first person I can actually see there is Pete. So I might just say, Pete, what, what, what is this all about? Um, OK, so, um, uh, and I think Catherine should chip in on this um, as, <laughs> as soon as I get something wrong. Um, so um, uh, National Grid has some connection planning assumptions that they use when they're looking at new connections onto the network. Um, and uh, th there's, there's lots of assumptions built into that. But, uh, you know, one of one of the assumptions is around batteries. Um, so what should what should uh, National Grid be modelling batteries behaviour as um, when they're looking at new connections to the network? So traditionally, they've gone down a sort of pessimistic route. Um, assuming that uh, when you're at peak demand times on the system, that batteries are going to be importing uh, power charging and uh, making peak demand issues worse. Um, and then when there's peak generation times on the network, that batteries are going to be exporting uh, and making um, those uh, adding to the export um, uh, and discharging. And, and so when, when you have that really sort of worst case scenario modeling, um, it unsurprisingly ends up triggering uh, lots of reinforcements across the network. And I think there's something like, and Catherine, correct me if I'm wrong here, 90 gigawatts worth of um, uh, accepted to connect storage um, on the transmission system. So uh, what National Grid are looking at doing is remodeling that and essentially uh, assuming that batteries are going to be at zero megawatts. Um, Catherine, do you want to just um sort of come in and no i think that, that, that was that was very um much more eloquently uh done than i than i would i think um it's, it's maybe worth us um scene setting a little bit in the sense that uh national grid do something quite different from dnos so um so when we're talking about like looking at those worst case assumptions 
that's very much how a DNO operates, isn't it, Pete? Um, but but National Grid, when they um, normally when they run studies to determine uh, you know the connection date for a new connection, um, they are running what we call like a probabilistic economic dispatch model. So they're not just looking at kind of you know the worst winter day and the worst summer um, sunny day. Um, they are you know running thousands of, of of scenarios for every half hour throughout the year, um, and they and they are making kind of credible economic um, decisions about you know which generations online so you know if you've got a really sunny really windy day in the summer they're assuming that lots of thermal plant isn't generating because prices are low and it's not worth their while so it's quite sophisticated the modeling they do so batteries were just this big sort of sore thumb of an outlier because because they didn't really know what batteries were going to do they just plonked them in at 100 percent. so i think i think you know and just have sort of held their hands up and said well that was just a bad assumption um in what is otherwise actually a very sophisticated modeling approach so i think you know we're sort of we're all behind the change and um and, and you know in some ways it just goes to show how 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 good and how clever you can get when you sort of do marry up those like technological constraints and the kind of uh, market conditions and i was i was gonna throw a question back at you catherine is like some some people listening might just go well that's fantastic that national grid are are going to be modeling batteries as zero but isn't that just bonkers because they're not always zero they're going to be at some level above zero for some of the time so how on how on earth can national grid turn around and, and make that decision you know it i, I think to, in the in the ears of some that might just sound like a really i don't know crossing your fingers and hoping for the best type of yeah. scenario it's it's not i don't think you know so, so so to be clear you know national grid when they're assessing a connection if a battery is applying to them you know when they assess that 100 megawatt battery application they're putting the other batteries to zero in the background they're still looking at that battery having 100 megawatts of export and 100 megawatts of import so so it's not it's, it's perhaps not quite as as simplistic as just sort of setting everyone to zero um but i, I guess the point here is that you know we do expect and the market has been quite clear that that we expect batteries at least for the foreseeable future um, to be largely driven by by arbitrage revenues don't we i think so 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 that does suggest that when you know when pricing is high on the electricity networks uh, because we've got not enough generation we expect batteries to be exporting so helping the networks um and and, and you know conversely when, when, when pricing is um is very low overnight um, we've got you know actually we struggle to have enough demand on the system and we expect batteries to charge. So most of the time we do expect batteries to be basically doing the converse of what the constraint is on the network. So putting them at zero is actually quite a, a sensible halfway house because, when, you know, about that 100 megawatt battery could be exporting 100 megawatts or importing 100 megawatts. So, um, you know, zero is effectively the kind of halfway hedged position. So I think it's quite a sensible strategic viewpoint. And also, I mean, I was chatting to someone today who I think had, had sort of taken the approach of, of this sort of seems great but what if my battery wants to export am i going to get constrained you know and, and understanding that actually you've still got your techs you've still got your access rights so if national grid have messed this up you know and they've perhaps taken a risk and been too optimistic it is their risk so they will have to manage that commercially and they will have to commercially constrain people so so really if there's anyone kind of taking a risk here it's probably national grid rather than the impact it's going to have on connected generators would you agree yeah i think so uh, and i think it, as well that uh, i think you touched on just then that national the, the way national grid op operates at transmission is different from a distribution as well isn't it because they they have the ability to sort of constrain uh, financially commercially constrain generators whereas at distribution level that's not really a, such a thing is it um that uh, sort of DNOs have generally looked at connections at distribution level as a sort of 
fit and forget, connect and forget a, approach, and you don't go back and play with them and, and unless you switch out the circuit that they're connected to or something and turn them off. Yeah, yeah. Whereas at, at transmission, it's very dynamic, isn't it? You know, we, we we manage the system all the time because it's obviously not cost effective to build a transmission system to be able to cope with every offshore wind farm generating at full pelts, you know, every solar farm generating at full pelts. So, yeah, we have that like continuous kind of economic cost benefit analysis of should I build another bit of network or should I just pay some curtailment payments to some generators? And I think that's, you know, that's a huge success of the GB electricity system that maybe we don't... Um, you know, parade enough. Yeah, uh, and, and that's backed up again, I, I, I guess, by sort of technical um, systems to allow National Grid to to implement those constraints as well, isn't it? You know, the sort of visibility and control type um, requirements that transmission connections have that might be a, a bit more superior, a um, bit more involved than a distribution. Yeah, and probably even than a distribution kind of you know, active network management scheme, um, you know, your your requirements um, as a transmission connected customer uh, are a lot more arduous. You're you're submitting uh, what are called physical notifications, but basically you're you're submitting your predicted power output on a half hour by half hour basis to National Grid, so they've got a really good idea about what's coming up. Um, so so that that that's a bit of a game changer as well in terms of ability for them. I think people are still maybe concerned because um, you know perhaps it's like the you you often hear don't you about the sort of you know national grid control room and and it being quite a sort of manual process still to take curtailment actions and you know do you just ring your mate um in a in a big in a big hydro plant or a big power station because you know you know that if you ask him to do something sorry it could be her um you know that, that they're going to respond to that action and you've, you've kind of got a got a reputation and a, a a relationship whereas you know this newfangled battery you might not really have had any kind of operation or operational relationship with the, the asset owner so i think there is a question about that um about how you know, perhaps National Grid might have to change their processes, automate more so that people really trust the kind of constraint mechanisms. But um, but I think it's a first step, like th this change in the in the construction planning assumptions are, is, is, a, is a really huge step forward. Yeah. And I think one of the things that slightly confuses me about it, and maybe it will, um, uh, or maybe you can help me in a minute, or maybe it, it will just become clear over time is that um, it's it's only in England and Wales at the moment, um, and that the the Scottish TOs haven't yet moved uh, into the, the, having the same assumptions. But I'm also <laughs> I'm also aware that it's a it's a GB wide network. So you know, does do, does National Grid in England and Wales what do they assume about the batteries connected in Scotland? So I I haven't quite got my head around yet how. National Grid are and the, the Scottish TOs are sort of coordinating or otherwise. I think probably to anyone outside, perhaps sort of, uh, you know, 20 people in National Grid and, and, and 10 people in Scottish Power and, and SSEN, um, it's a little bit of a black box to us, isn't it? You know, we talk about CPAs and I think um, I was on a great call the other day where where someone who's very, very well respected in the industry just said, am I having a senior moment? What What is a CPA? <laughs> you know, and I thought, oh, good on, good on him for speaking out um, because, um, you know, this is this is basically something that which which up until now has happened behind the scenes. So uh, National Grid actually, as the ESO, have have created the the construction planning assumptions and handed them over to the TOs. They've said this is what you should consider in the background model. So we tend to kind of think of you know the ESO just being the gatekeeper for applications um, and 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 handing all of the study work over to the, the 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 transmission owner so i think that's like you know that's kind of always been like a little bit of a reminder or, or like learning for all of us that, that actually the eso are setting the assumptions and then the to is kind of turning the handle so so i think my reading of this is that the eso is saying this is where we're going you know this is where gb wide is going 
Um, we've already had the conversation with NJET, so in England and Wales, you know, they're comfortable that we're changing the assumptions for them doing their power system analysis. I think they're having the conversation with Scottish Power Transmission. I think they haven't yet had the conversation with SSEN. So I, my, my uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm predicting that this is this is all going to follow. So I think, you know, within six months, we're going to be talking about this as GB wide assumptions. I don't yeah. think we can just as you say, you know, we can't divvy off England and Wales, can we? <laughs> it's crazy to think that you only assume the batteries in England and Wales are at zero and everything in Scotland's just at full output. <laughs> I guess it does. It does make sense in some ways to I, I, I can understand why they picked England and Wales first, because I think that uh, it's it's National Grid ET who are pointing out that, that, that actually bat it's batteries on their network, which is having a real impact on these connection dates. So like 2036, Hugh, you, you mentioned, I mean, what's amazing, it's 2036. That's not for connections in, you know, the Northwest Highlands. 2036 is for connections in, you know, in North Wales, potentially in some of the some of the Northwest, um, potentially in the Southwest as well. So that, that so in England, you know, so it's the constraints that NGET are seeing, I think, have triggered them them getting to, you know, almost sort of breaking point, I think, in terms of what they can assess. And, and I suppose that the winds in England and Wales could be quite big. So I think, you know, if I was sitting on a connection offer uh, with a you know a 2030 something date in England and Wales, I'd be really quite optimistic about this process. Um, you know, helping to bring that forward. Whereas if I was sitting on a connection offer for you know the north of Scotland, I think a lot of those constraints are driven by more real problems. So you know a lot of offshore wind, um, and and they maybe aren't going to come forward so quickly even once they get implemented. So they kind of it makes sense. I think they've taken an 80 20 approach. Because because it also appears to me that. There, there are probably possibly areas in England and Wales where there are real problems as well um, that haven't just been caused by batteries. So, uh, you know, like one of the areas, East Anglia, um, you've got a lot of offshore wind predicted to come into East Anglia. You've got Sizewell C, new nuclear power station. You know, they are, you know, lo long time scale, but real, um, real schemes that are going to be coming forward slowly over the next sort of 10 years. Um, and, and I wonder whether just just reassessing the, the way batteries are modelled in that part of the world, is that really going to make the, the big difference that we all hope it will? Um, or are there sort of, sort of still real concerns there, real constraints that are going to be triggered anyway, even if you assume every battery's uh, running at zero? And, and I haven't quite got my head around that yet. If you're liking this podcast so far, you may want to pop over to the Connectology page on Road Knight Taylor's website and sign up to the Connectology newsletter for much more know-how, insight and thought leadership in electricity network connections. The link to this is in the description. Don't miss out on any of the articles, explainers, videos, webinars and podcasts that Road Knight Taylor's Connectologists share to give you an edge and help you overcome your grid frustrations. And just uh, just to just to be clear that we've been talking about the sort of transmission connected projects, but actually we're also uh, their modelling assumptions. Am I right that they're actually going to be modelling using these assumptions for modelling all of those embedded um, generators and embedded storage rather as well? Yeah, I I, th I think there are two um, two levels to that, Hugh. Uh, one is. Um, every embedded connection um, on the, onto the distribution networks goes through the project progression or statement of works process um, and gets assessed by uh, National Grid ESO in terms of what reinforcement works 
they have to sit behind. So, so there's lots of embedded customers who, who are getting really long uh, connection timescales because of uh, th these, these large transmission reinforcement schemes. Um, so so uh, the, the way that I believe the process is going to be working is that National Grid will go back and amend uh, not only the connection offers for directly connected transmission customers, but will also be amending uh, the modification offers that they've issued to DNOs, uh, which which will then flow through to um, embedded customers. So, so, so there could be connection dates that improve for embedded customers in relation to those wider transmission constraints. Um, how how then the uh, those changes changes into the connection planning assumptions um, ch uh, Im impact on um, the way batteries are modelled at grid supply point level? Uh, I'm not yet sure, and I don't know if Catherine, if you're back, whether you've um, heard around exactly what they're going to be doing at GSP level, um, uh, and and whether that changes. Uh, compared to what they're doing at sort of wider transmission level? So they do, Grid do model um, what happens for like dist distribution connected customers in like in this um, this sort of economic dispatch analysis that we've been talking about um, uh, the, the, and, the, and the, the constructive planning assumptions that go with it. Um, that that does include assumptions around what happens at distribution. It's quite interesting. So, um, you know, they uh, they actually do things like apply attrition rates to projects. So, uh, you know, grid say, well, we've 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 you know we've looked at the last you know uh, over you know, the last ten years of operation. You know, we know that not everyone who applies to us actually builds out a connection. We know that people who haven't got their planning consent are even less likely to build out a connection. So, we actually assume that you know between like half and a, and two you know a third of uh, generation projects just drop out of the queue at some point because they never get built and they apply that interestingly at distribution as well as at transmission and that's all for setting the background but it, it means that i think there's this really uh, clear kind of conversation point to say well should we be doing the same thing at distribution so when when a dno is applying at, uh, you know they're submitting their appendix g data or they're applying for a project progression should there be some kind of diversity around those assumptions because if there was i think that would be really helpful for for, for actually kind of it, it would just mean we could get people moving um, get projects connected and and then get to a, a kind of a, a okay well actually maybe if everyone does want to connect now we have higher constraint levels until we've built this reinforcement i think the emphasis is very clearly on you know not just kind of ignoring distributed energy resources because it's hard um so i think i think national grid want to do something about that um and i, I imagine that they i guess they have to go and talk to the dnos they don't they pete because it, it ultimately it's how, how a dno submits a, a mod app or a project progression which is going to shape um how it affects their customers yeah, uh, and there are quite a few, well, lots of grid supply points across the country where, where um, uh, re reinforcement of supergrid transformers has been triggered, specifically because of battery connections, either either export or import or both, um, and it's in those sort of scenarios where, I guess, if those assumptions change and improve, um, that uh, customers might see not only reductions in timescales but potentially in some places could see reductions in cost if they're not having to uh, contribute towards you know paying for supergrid transformer reinforcement so it's it's really got quite a significant um, knock-on 
process. Um, Interestingly, I saw a, um, uh, I'm sure loads of people will have been on, on a call uh, uh, a couple of days ago about, about the kind of two-stage offer process and, and that, that that also dealt with you know, the, the way that National Brilliant pick up these changes. Um, but interestingly, I thought Susanna put up a slide, which was, um, who's, the, who's the head of connections, um, put up a slide which showed all of the different initiatives that National Grid have got to basically try and get to a more efficient transmission connections sort of regime um and there were a scary number on that slide but one of them which i don't think has been talked about very much is a policy uh sort of development program to set grid supply point limits so this is like all you know all about giving the dno control on those uh sgt assets so saying you know you you have they're your customer assets this is the rating or this is your contractual limit associated with that now you go and manage it and i think it's interesting because i think there's no time frame as far as i'm aware on when that's going to be deployed but once it is deployed it'll suddenly change the emphasis because i think the dnos will be far more engaged with managing this process and it's it's not just a well national grid have said x it's a no actually this is something i can control within my limits yeah and i think that'll be really interesting to see see how the dnos then respond to that because you know they then need the systems in place to to be able to you know control generation on on their own network both sort of commercially and technically uh and i mean so some dnos have got the the i guess the the sort of uh start of those technical solutions with active network management and so on being able to control generators but i think perhaps there's there's a lot of that commercial um uh, development that potentially needs to happen on the DNO side to allow to allow them to have you know control those generators in in the way that they need to. Um, so but it's so, a bit yeah, of an I, obvious gauntlet, isn't it? You know, I think people people across the industry will say, you know, well, actually, we've changed the fundamental assumptions that transmission can't we change them? You know, these are the same batteries we're talking about; they're all playing in the same market. Um, can't we change them at distribution? Absolutely. I I I I imagine that all the DNOs are now going to get bombarded with questions from developers going well if national national grid can do this at transmission level why on earth can't you make these same assumptions at distribution level and therefore free up capacity so that we can connect more schemes um so so i, I would imagine that some dnos are starting gonna 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 get telephone calls and emails yeah. um, uh, to, to that doesn't respect. this solve my problem i suppose i think they're going back to what you asked pete earlier about um there are some problems it doesn't solve. Uh, so like East Anglia, for example, um, a lot of those 2028 dates, they're based on uh, a system reinforcement, which is being triggered sort of by two things. What One is like the, the level of offshore wind connecting into East Anglia. Now, the change to the, you know how we plan batteries is not going to have any impact on those thermal flows. Um, and those are real wind projects. You know, they, they've got consents and so on. Um, so I think that Bramford Twinstead circuit, for example, you know, which is, I feel like everyone knows not about now um you know i think that's going to stay there um and um and there's, there's the stability constraints as well which again they're not they're not being driven by by batteries so i think there are lots of constraints which are going to stay um i was quite uh encouraged by um I think, you know grid grid sort of have put together some ideas about you know what are they going to do where changing the cpa assumptions don't result in earlier connection dates and um i think they've got more serious about kind of looking at non-firm products um i think you know uh yeah the kind of like stage connections obviously everyone like got very enthusiastic about and then i think uh, you know national grid said actually you know there's a limit to how much we can stage people behind intertrips and so on so i think there's a, a desire to look at that again and also um kind of like delayed enabling works is what they're calling it at the moment i think which is basically like 
can I sort of borrow the capacity temporarily off someone else um, because it's my enabling work, uh, not theirs, but they're not going to connect because, for example, they're an offshore wind farm or they're a nuclear project for another 10 years. So can I can I connect beforehand and then you just do the enabling work in the kind of intervening period? So I think there's like quite a lot of appetite for change. And just because um, there will be, I'm sure, listening into this, there'll be um, developers and um, investors who, who are sitting on accepted offers that might have 2028 20, and beyond connection timescales and and I know um, they're going to be interested in first of all understanding what the process is going to be and I know from speaking to you Pete it's going to be a long one so they're not going to suddenly get an answer in their Christmas stocking saying you can connect in 2023. Um, so a couple of things first of all is just how long are they going to have to wait but secondly before you give them that bad news um, Pete when I was off to speak at a conference during the week and I asked you for some stats and you very kindly just went onto the tech register and and had a look and there were something like 287 schemes that do have connection dates after um, 2025 so we've got to assume that a lot of those are being caught up in these reinforcement works and 110 of those um, reference energy storage so that that's an awful lot of connection customers and that's on the tech register alone so that doesn't even include um, all of those schemes that are uh, that are contracted to connect down the dis- distribution level. So there are potentially hundreds of schemes that 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 might um, get good news. Um, and and you've just been saying that obviously there are some parts of the network. I know this is only England, Wales, but Scotland and and up in East Anglia where where they might not get such good news. But but uh, how many schemes, kind of top of your head or a proportion, do you think are going to have a significant um, improvement in connection timescales and how long, and either of you can uh, have a crack at any of this, um, and how long are they going to have to wait to find out? Okay, I can answer, we can answer the second one much easier than we can answer the first question to you. Yeah, that's, that's the easy bit. So. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the, the proportion of customers that might get an improved connection timescale, oh my, I, I, genuine, well, I genuinely don't think I could think of what that number was. You know, you, you'd there's lots of specific things there's you, you you might have to come down to regions perhaps and say like like Catherine was just saying that you know the East Anglia region looks likely that it might not get that sort of improvement because of those sort of real issues that are out there there, there are maybe other areas of the country where there are real issues caused by you know um, offshore wind I, I know there's lots of wind programmed for North Wales you know area um, uh, etc. So I, I think you might have to do it regionally rather than uh, by a sort of specific project. And I, I, I genuinely couldn't couldn't give you a number. Catherine, Catherine is now going to give you the number. <laughs> you. <laughs> I, I'm not. I think I'm a bit more optimistic, Pete. But um, well, maybe it's on time frame though, because um, you know what we're talking about. As you say, it's not immediate. So I think within the time frames that it's going to take for people to get their revised offers back through this. A specific two-stage process to deal with the change in the CPAs. I think within that time frame, we're going to get some good news on other fronts. So I think for the people where the CPA assumptions changing doesn't help them, I think there are other things that will. Um, so yeah. Well, you're talking about the key management aspects. Um, well, lots of things really, actually. So I mean, I guess yeah. So the sort of key management aspects in terms. Well, no, actually, 
uh, we we use key management to mean too many different things, don't we? Do you, do you mean kicking people off when they're just sitting on a connection offer that they're not doing anything with? Oh no, no, not at all. No, more, more sort of um, uh, sort of borrowing lending. Uh, yeah, capacity. yeah. So, so, so sort of um, delaying enabling works. Yes, I think that could help people. Um, I think uh, kind of relooking at the tools for non-firm earlier access offers um, will also help people. I think that some of the um, holistic network design work may help people. Um, that's that's obviously happening in the offshore sphere, um, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's potentially quite radical, I think. So um, we might end up with, you know, brand new, really big bootstraps, which suddenly do solve some of the Scottish problems or move some of the requirement for onshore transmission reinforcement and just move it offshore. That that could benefit onshore projects quite significantly. So I think there are a few things that, that mean I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily you know, be crying my eyes out over a late connection date yet. Catherine, Catherine's clearly far more optimistic in nature. Oh, it's Friday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> um, just on the timescales one, Hugh, I, I think that's probably a little bit easier to answer in, in terms of a ballpark. I, I think it, it certainly looks like um, that this two-stage offer process for, for new connections is going to be introduced very soon. Um, which means that um, new offers uh, that are coming out, you know, from maybe even as soon as sort of early December, uh, are going to have this two-stage process in which which National Grid are just putting in place to give themselves a little bit bit of breathing room, uh, whilst they then go back and revise all the existing accepted offers, um, and I think National Grid are looking at you know revising those accepted offers over the next sort of six, nine, twelve months. Um, uh, so, so, so it's in that sort of time frame. I think Pro probably within you know twelve months, a lot of customers are going to have a revised offer that they're, they're going to be able to um, look at, and some customers are going to have revised offers you know sooner than that. So, um, it, it certainly looks like it's going to be happening relatively quickly from a national grid point of view. If I was a power systems engineer in national grid, I'd feel like I was going to have a busy five months. Yes, and we've got a we've obviously got a, a huge number of clients with well an awful lot of projects. Um, a lot of them transmission connected, and um, but um, also a lot of the distribution connected, and and I, I'm hoping that you're going to be giving lots of them sort of some fairly warm feelings going into the into the festive period. It depends where they are. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah. And maybe and maybe where they are in their project process as well. Like I think maybe that is the you know not to end on a down note, but um, the the thing to perhaps be be wary of is um, that this. To apply to everything so it doesn't matter if you're applying for a brand new connection or, or they're revising your existing offer or you have um you know you're a year away from connecting and or maybe two years away from connecting and you wanted to do what you thought was a fairly straightforward mod app you know to perhaps kind of tweak your tech or something and you might get pulled into this process so i think for people with advanced connections uh, where you know you're going to be needing to mod app or something that that's that's where i'd be feeling uncomfortable about this Right, and and also the uh, I understand that the tech amnesty so far, and uh, the sort of clock is ticking on on the closing of. Um, oh yeah, it's Wednesday next Wednesday. Yeah, Wednesday, and, and I think you were saying that very few um, uh, people have actually expressed interest. Is that right? Yeah, which I mean is what is what was kind of expected. So National Grid said on Thursday it was one hundred and seventy something megawatts um, of of interest they'd had, um, which is obviously you know pretty. I think I think the problem beans. is that 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 um, those. Uh, people who are holding those schemes, they haven't heard your podcast on on the tech amnesty and the clever things that you can do. So um, hopefully by, by the time Wednesday comes around, they will have done and they might um, sort of pitch in. Um, I think uh, Christmas is fast approaching, um, as is um, uh, kind of Friday drinks time. So 
thank you both very very much. I know that you've been on the on on calls um, all day um, with clients, and so it has been back to back. And so uh, thank you for uh, using the end of your um, energies mentally. So at the end of the week and at the end of the Friday to to explain all this to us, it is. Um, I'm going to go into the weekend and Christmas thinking it's very exciting, and loads of these schemes are going to move forward, even if I'm. Um, just being a little bit over optimistic but um, you know hopefully there will be uh, lots of people who get good news um, so yes thank you both very much and um, catch you on Monday thanks you cheers guys bye thank you for listening to this episode of the Connectology podcast if you found it helpful please share it with any of your colleagues or connections you think may be interested and please do subscribe at Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts Spotify or wherever you get your content You can find out more about our services at roadnighttaylor.co.uk, link in the description, where you can also sign up to our free Connectology newsletter for more news and thought leadership in network connections. If, during this podcast, you found yourself wondering what it would be like to have a Roadnight Taylor Connectologist in your life, please do email laura at roadnighttaylor.co.uk to find out how their game-changing skills and insight can change the game for you too.